And so, of course, families with more economic resources can better afford to have one parent um, reduce their working hours or to drop out of the labor force. The group that I'm most concerned about, frankly, is those at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum. These low-income families are more likely to be working in essential jobs where they have to show up day to day. Mm. And I think that's an impossible scenario that moms are facing. Women still do two-thirds of the housework and childcare in their families. And of course, this hinders their ability to participate in the paid labor force on par with men. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. In recent months, researchers have tried to quantify how remote instruction has burdened students during the pandemic. But it's not just students who've been affected by the switch to learning from home. It also appears to have big implications for their mothers. That's according to a new study from Gender and Society. It's called The Gendered Consequences of a Weak Infrastructure of Care, School Reopening Plans, and Parents' Employment During the COVID-19 Pandemic. One of its co-authors is Caitlin Collins. She's an assistant professor of sociology and of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Washington University. And she joins us today to talk about it. So Caitlin Collins, welcome. Thanks very much, Sarah. So your study looks closely at employment levels in three states, Maryland, New York, and Texas. Why those three? So to zoom out a bit, uh, the issue of school reopenings is, of course, paramount to all families who have have young ones at home right now. They've been trapped at home with their kiddos for months on end. And as schools reopened in uh, this past fall semester, we had we as sociologists decided it was important to start tracking how different districts have decided to return to school. Have they returned uh, primarily in person? Have they adopted a hybrid model? Or are they conducting classes primarily remotely or online? line for students. Mm -hmm. And of course, our assumption is folks who care about women's and men's labor force participation, especially for that of parents, we were interested in tracking how this is playing out across the country for different school districts and also different states. So we collected detailed primary data that we're calling the elementary school operating status database to measure the percentage of school districts that were offering in-person, remote, and hybrid instruction models for elementary schools specifically uh, by state in September 2020. And we chose these three states because they represent these three different models of primarily remote, hybrid, and in-person instruction. And, and we saw something different playing out for the three. And those, those trends were reflected in the broader study uh, we have done on 26 states to date. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about these three states. Uh, Maryland, I think, was the most interesting here. What did you find in Maryland? Yes. Yeah, so oh, I feel for <laughs> mothers in Maryland right now, unfortunately. So uh, in the context of Maryland, it reopened for the 2020-2021 school year in fully remote status across all of their school districts. Mm. And in Maryland, we, we observed the largest drop in the probability of mom's labor force participation between the first semester of the 2019-2020 school year and the current school year. So we were comparing mom's labor force participation rates uh, pre-pandemic last year to during the pandemic this year, right? And moms of elementary age school children in Maryland, unfortunately, were 16 percentage points less likely to be in the labor force during the first semester than, than during the same period of time the year before. Right. Wow. So mom's labor force participation dropped 16 percentage points as a result of this primarily uh, remote model of education in the state. And did you see a similar effect for fathers? 
So we didn't see a, a similar effect, effect for fathers. Their aggregate labor force status also dropped by five percentage points, but it wasn't a, statist a statistically significant difference between the 2019 semester and the 2020 semester. So it dropped a bit, but it wasn't a statistically significant difference like it was for, for Maryland moms, which again was a bit jaw-dropping. 16 percentage points is, an, is a dramatic reduction in mother's probability of labor force participation. So how does that compare to Texas? Whew, Texas is a is a state that offered at least in more than half of the school districts there the, the they offered elementary school students a full time in person option, and what we saw was uh, interestingly actually non significant differences for uh, both moms and dads. Both moms' labor force participation and dads dropped a little bit. Moms much more so than dads. They were reduced about ten percentage points. Fathers only about three percentage points. But neither of those were significant changes from 2019 to 2020, which suggests that in elementary schools offering in-person education had a far less negative effect on mother's labor force participation than school districts that offered primarily remote education to students. So this in-person education allowing kids to return to school in person actually had a pot, you know, it didn't have nearly as much an, of a negative effect on mom's labor force participation as we saw in Maryland, which again, if we, if we think about our elementary schools as really one of the primary infrastructures of care we have for young kids in our country, it makes sense that allowing kids to return to school would have less negative effect on parents' labor force participation than in states where they have to do this work remotely. Hmm. And we should also note New York in here. While it's not as as um, you know as big of a contrast as these other two, this is also an important note. What you found there. Yeah, so New York offered a variety of programs depending on the school district, with about 50% of school districts opting for a hybrid program with in-person education twice per week. And in New York, we found that moms predicted labor force participation declined by about 7 percentage points from 79 to 72% uh, between 2019 and 2020, whereas fathers was reduced by about four. Uh, but neither of these shifts were statistically significant either. Um, mm. And to me, we found this really interesting. We expected hybrid education to have a more detrimental effect on on parents and especially mothers' labor force participation. And, and we didn't find it yet, though I will say that um, at the time of this study was published, we conducted these analyses on the 26 states in our database to date. Uh, we have now collected data for every single school district uh, for all 50 states and Washington, D.C. that have more than 500 uh, children um, enrolled in the district, and that's about 9,000 school districts across the country. So we are rerunning our analyses on this full data set, and um, we aren't done yet, but my expectation is that perhaps hybrid models will be detrimental to moms' labor force participation in this context once we're able to look at the full data set. Hmm. And with a hybrid model, we're thinking the children can be in school uh, maybe as many as four days a week, three days a week. It, it gives the moms a chance to continue to work, so it's not not as detrimental, but you're saying bigger exactly. picture, there, there might be some problems here too. Exactly, exactly. So when we're thinking about these women that are dropping out of the labor force, do we have any sense of whether these are affluent women who are dropping out because they want to, they can, they can make this choice, or are these women dropping out because they have to? So this study can't speak to specifically which moms are dropping out, uh, but I can more broadly as a sociologist talk about the phenomenon of mother's labor force participation in the United States. So of course, differently situated women uh, have different barriers and opportunities that they face when it comes to paid work outside the home, right? Uh, in the context of the pandemic, it's certainly the case that uh, more affluent mothers have the ability to reduce their labor force participation, maybe by uh, the number of working hours uh, in a given week or by dropping out altogether. 
to contend with the very real difficulties they face in the context of the pandemic around the clock caregiving is is no joke for families. And so of course, families with more economic resources can better afford to have one parent um, reduce their working hours or to drop out of the labor force in order, in order to meet this heightened caregiving demand. Uh, unfortunately, the in the group that I'm most concerned about, frankly, is those at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, low income parents who are trying to juggle paid work with this unpaid caregiving. And to me, it's often the case that these families have fewer economic resources to draw on to navigate work and family. And uh, in the context of the pandemic, we also know that these low income families are more likely to be working in essential jobs where they have to show up day to day. Mm. And I think that's an impossible scenario that moms are facing, um, having to go to work every day when they don't have a safe place to send their kids while they're working is to me a dilemma that I'm struggling to wrap my mind around for these families. So your study suggests there could be devastating long-term effects for some of these women. Uh, What do we know about an interruption like this in somebody's workforce participation? Oh, I wish I didn't sound so alarmist in my comments about this, but to be honest, as someone who studies gender inequality in the context of the labor force and also in families, even small periods out of the labor force have long-term quite disastrous consequences for for mothers' lifetime earnings, their occupational attainment. And it might not seem like a big deal to stop work for a little bit of time. And believe me, I have talked to so many women who this is a very logical decision given the constrained set of choices they face day to day. Um, Unfortunately, when it is moms and not dads who are being forced to prioritize their family over their work responsibilities, this means that the gender disparities we already saw between moms and dads' labor force participation before the pandemic are likely to widen. Um, And this will have long-term detrimental economic consequences for women and their families. Hmm. You mentioned fathers there, and I want to read a quote from this study. Uh, You and your co-authors write, quote, without more support from fathers, employers, and the government, something had to give under this pressure. How much blame should fathers shoulder for this problem we're talking about? Hmm. Oh, the word blame is such a thorny one, right? Uh, To me, in the United States, broadly speaking, we conceptualize caregiving and childbearing in particular as tasks associated with women, right? Mm -hmm. When we think about caregiving, we think about moms. The truth is that men are every bit as capable of being caregivers and egalitarian caregivers in the home as as women are, right? Um, The truth is that it's economically necessary in most two-parent families for both parents to work outside the home, men and women alike. And if we zoom out a bit to think about the past half century or so, women have entered the paid labor force uh, at enormous and unprecedented rates, particularly moms with young children. Uh, What we haven't seen concurrent changes in is fathers' contributions to domestic labor, the housework and childcare that keeps households afloat day to day. Women still do two thirds of the housework and childcare in their families. And of course, this hinders their ability to participate in the paid labor force on par with men. So absolutely part of uh, kind of the other side of this gender revolution, not only women's entrance into the paid labor force, we need men participating more equally at home. Um, And many men want to and feel unable to. So I think that's an important piece to mention in the context of dads uh, and domestic life as well. Hmm. We asked our listeners about this on our St. Louis on the Air Facebook page. We often talk about things we're going to talk about on the air. We get their ideas before the show and and sometimes after it. Oh, nice. Yeah. And and Mary wrote that she was an example of this. She said she left her part-time job. She had been serving as a medical support for her 84-year-old mother. Uh, She writes, I'm now a full-time virtual monitor for my autistic teen. It's exhausting. I'm facing the algebra I didn't understand 40 years ago. (laughs) And she adds, other sisters had to step 
happen and take time off work to drive my mother to her medical appointments. Please mention those who gave up careers to be unpaid family caregivers. COVID meant family had to step in more than ever. We're the sandwich generation. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. Our guest today is Caitlin Collins. She's an assistant professor of sociology and of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Washington University. Her new study quantifies the pandemic's devastating effect on mothers' employment. Uh, Caitlin, this topic of remote education, it's certainly become controversial in some quarters in that teachers' unions have really pushed to keep things remote. At the same time, you hear women saying, hey, this is killing me. I can't do my job. Teachers are saying that they aren't babysitters. What would you say in response to that? Of course, I don't think teachers are babysitters, but I do think our public education system constitutes the largest infrastructure of care in the United States, absent a national child care system like many other Western industrialized countries have. So to my way of thinking, the conversation really isn't about pitting teachers against families, right? They all have the same goal, which is for us to get on the other side of the pandemic and for schools to resume in-person teaching um, as normal, right? But the reality is, uh, of course, that I don't think teachers should be forced to teach in environments they don't feel safe in. And to me, that suggests, again, prioritizing the vaccination of teachers as essential workers so that we can get children back into schools as quickly as possible in a safe manner and not in a way that uh, constitutes a threat to the well-being of teachers and, of course, also their families that rely on them day to day. You write a lot about how different countries in the world deal with issues that affect parents. I'm wondering, are there countries you'd point to who've done a better job of this, of being able to keep kids in school in, in ways that are safe, whereas in the U.S., there's a lot of places where that hasn't happened? Yes, I I wish the U.S. was an international leader in this regard, and unfortunately, that's just not how this played out during the pandemic, which unfortunately wasn't a surprise to me. So in many other countries, um, governments prioritized schools, right? When we mm-hmm. think about keeping things open, keeping various entities open, we the reality is that childcare is a central feature of our economic infrastructure. People can't work unless their kids are safely cared for, right? And and so in other countries, Denmark is a good example. Uh, schools and daycares were really the last places to close and the first to reopen. When then when they needed to enter lockdown, schools were priorities. Daycares were priorities. And, you know, here in the U.S., we see in so many states places like restaurants and gyms and bars being open with schools closed. And to me, that's such a, a backwards way of thinking about our priorities, right? Children are our future. Children are our future taxpayers, citizens, uh, workers, and their well-being is absolutely paramount at this time um, to me. And 
And again, it's the infrastructure on which all <laughs> all parents rely in order to engage in their own jobs. So to me, prioritizing the reopening of schools has got to go before all else. And as you pointed out, it didn't surprise you that the U.S. handled this in the <laughs> way that it handled it. What is it about America where schools come last or, or frankly, support for parents often seems to come last? Oh, Sarah, so so the reality is that the United States has the most family-hostile public policy of any country in the Western industrialized world. We think of families and of caregiving as private and personal responsibilities. Um, and in the U.S., under this liberal welfare model, we suggest that all adults need to work for pay outside the home and turn to the market to meet their caregiving needs. Um, meanwhile, all of our other peer countries, other wealthy Western countries, have some form of a national, affordable, quality childcare system, right? Hmm. Um, and in the United States, we lack a, a system like this entirely, which means parents are largely on their own when it comes to navigating employment and work. The truth is in the U.S. that 86% of, of working age adults will become parents while they are working, which means that virtually all adults need caregiving solutions, right? And we have virtually none in the United States. Families are, are largely left to their own devices to figure this out. And what that really means in a U.S. context, moms are largely on their own to figure this out because women continue to bear the disproportionate responsibility for the domestic sphere and also child rearing in a U.S. context. So you wrote this in November, uh, quote, amid the grim landscape of the pandemic and the U.S. election, I see one bright light. American parents have finally realized that the government can and should do far more to support them at work and at home. Do you think how badly uh, the pandemic has gone in so many ways for American parents has been a real wake up? I do think it's been a real wake up, Sarah. Uh, and to me, that's an exciting political possibility, this moment we're in right now. So I've done research with with working moms in Sweden and Germany and Italy, as well as the United States. And American moms are unique in blaming themselves for the difficulties they face day to day in navigating work and family. Moms often told me, oh, it's my fault if I could just get organized, if I could find the right daycare solution, if I could only be a little more efficient with my time, I wouldn't be under so much stress. In these other countries, women did not think it was their own fault that they were struggling to navigate work and family. They understood that there were unreasonable cultural expectations for uh, how awesome a parent you needed to be day to day to your child. And they also understood that that men, that employers and the government have a role to play in helping women reconcile uh, their jobs and their families. And to me, the pandemic has really highlighted the reality that they do have a role to play day to day. And the, I think it has also shown parents that this isn't on their shoulders solely, right? They've seen news stories reporting from other countries where parents have been able to return to work because daycares and schools were prioritized in the reopening, right? They have seen employers offer all sorts of uh, financial benefits as a result of federal rescue plans that have meant that we haven't seen unemployment rates spike in other countries like we have in the U.S. in these dramatic and awful ways. And so to me, this is a very exciting political moment for American parents to stop and think for themselves, wait a second, maybe I deserve more support in managing my dual responsibilities of child rearing and working outside the home. And maybe we should expect more of our employers and our federal government day to day um, in helping com complete these two very important tasks that really are the backbone of our society, our labor force and our families. We rely on both of them. And why not provide the sorts of federal policy supports that we've seen are the norm. They're kind of mundane and unexceptional in these other countries. And here, feel quite controversial by, by comparison, though in the context of the pandemic, exceedingly possible.
So I've heard a lot of parents express that frustration you're talking about. It certainly seems to be something that, that people are mindful of at this point. And yet parents of young kids, especially right now, um, with, you know, so many schools being closed. And if your school isn't closed, your aftercare is probably closed. You're just trying to cobble things together and, and keep mm-hmm. things going. It seems like my fellow parents of young kids are maybe the least likely to have time to advocate for change. What does it take to actually turn that awareness of it doesn't have to be that this way into actual action. Oh, you're right, right? It's the people who are the most exhausted, burned out, stressed, drained, conflicted that we are asking to advocate for their own uh, needs and rights right now, right? Um, the truth is that all of us have a vote and that vote really matters. We can vote in uh, policymakers who support more progressive work family policies that, again, are very normal and unremarkable in other countries. To me, that looks like paid uh, parental leave, right? Uh, We need to institute, in my mind, a federal minimum standard for paid vacation and sick days. There is no federal minimum standard in the United States right now that your employer offer you even one paid day off work in a given year. Hmm. But we aren't robots. No wonder everyone is exhausted and burned out. Um, To me, this means, again, expecting more of our politicians to enact policies that reflect the reality of the difficulties that U.S. families face today. These are universal struggles. And to me, that means we also need universal and structural solutions. Individual families are already giving it their all and trying their very hardest to navigate this impossible time. The truth is that parents know they shouldn't blame themselves at this point because it doesn't matter how hard you're working to ameliorate your work-family conflict. It's just an impossible ask. And to me, that means we need structural solutions for these structural problems. I think some people who resist these kind of changes are worried about how much it will cost or that this will end up putting the burden for more affluent parents onto parents who maybe don't have as much money because there's not two parents working in that household. Um, For the other countries that are doing it this way, does it pencil out for them? It does. So I I hear this concern, of course, right? The cost is a matter of consequence here. But think of of other countries that have these models in place already. Canada, Germany, right? Other enormous countries that also are incredibly productive. If we look at international competitiveness and rates like productivity, um, these policies, frankly, don't bankrupt their countries, right, their governments. In reality, actually, they end up boosting things like labor force participation and productivity, because enabling workers to navigate employment and parenting in ways that feel complementary instead of competing, of course, is good for employers in the national economy, right? And even in the US where we see states that have implemented policies like paid parental leave, for example, California, right? Uh, Employers in places like California report either a neutral or a positive effect on worker productivity, profitability, turnover, and morale. And to me, the evidence is abundantly plain that yes, of course, these programs cost money, but they don't bankrupt places. They actually end up increasing uh, productivity in the long run, right? Um, And that's as a result of socializing the cost of these more broadly across society, it is in our collective best interest for children to be raised well and for parents to have time away from work to care for their kids. Not just parents, all people benefit from that, right? Um, One easy statistic is that the U.S. has the largest gap in happiness between parents and non-parents of any Western industrialized country. Parents are less happy than non-parents in the U.S. And that gap is actually reduced and even reversed in countries that offer robust work family policy supports where it can actually be beneficial and enjoyable 
to be a parent again, right? And to combine that with paid work like most adults do today. So, I mean, Caitlin, you're you're coming at this from a place of you've got a lot of solutions here, and yet some of these statistics um, are just so depressing, and it's so hard to hear about everything America has gotten wrong in the last 12 months, and, and as you say, dating back long before that. Um, what gives you hope that this is the, the chance that we've been waiting for, this is the time to get this right? Oh, well, I hear parents angry <laughs> for the first time in a long time, right? Uh, especially families who have occupied positions of economic privilege for a long time. Um, and the fact that parents, instead of feeling, you know, full of blame themselves and doubt, feeling angry at the lack of support they have are getting during the pandemic is incredibly generative, right? Um, and to me, one very promising policy example is the child tax credit as, as part of the new rescue plan, right? This mm. is a way that the current administration is valuing caregiving, the act of caring for kids, and will go to support virtually all U.S. families. To me, this is a very bright light on the horizon. And the issue ahead will be ensuring that this is not just a temporary benefit, for, but for one that lasts longer term. Well, Caitlin Collins, you've given us a lot to think about today and maybe even some cause for optimism. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. And Caitlin, again, is an assistant professor of sociology and of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Washington University. We have her new study, which is just out in Gender and Society. It's linked on our website. If you're curious to read more, that's stlpublicradio.org. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.